Okay, we are for the ladies in our second series. I'm sorry, can I put this for the... Oh, one second, of the laws of a Beta Knesset. And we are dedicating this class. To uh, Nishama, Aliyah of Nishama, Miriam, Bat, Shokat, and Moshe Chayim. May the Nishamas have an Aliyah on me. By Hashgach Pratis, for reasons completely beyond my control, we did not learn last week, and I'm happy it happened. Let me tell you why I'm happy it happened. I'm not happy that we didn't learn. But as we're going into this type of learning, I don't want to lose <clears throat> completely the ruach of the classes we had until now. And some of this is extremely technical, which is very much appreciated by a certain type of people, men or women. But I would say it makes most people feel choked. Yeah. This detail and that detail and this detail and that detail. And last week, we learned just many, many more details of the same topic we learned two weeks ago. Now, I'm going to learn how to wing it here in a good way. This week, this series is moving on into the mechitza topic. Uh-huh. No, it's the goal of this is to speak about practical things for people, Pasha, to have the knowledge. We have to have the knowledge. And I want you to know something that, that our misnagdim, um, which means the liberal world, the, 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 the conservative world, that really believe that they're doing Judaism a favor by changing these traditions, particularly by taking down a mechitza, they are learned. But they are learned, and I'm not afraid to be recorded, mamish like the missionaries, which means that they are taught one line, two lines, one statement. It's like when the guy knocks on your door here and he quotes scripture. It says in Ezekiel, and he quotes a verse, and his understanding is, is that Yashke is who knows what. And if you would only open up the source and read the context, not only would we know that that source is a non-source, it's the opposite. And the same thing in these topics. So this is good, even though most people here don't need to know all the sources. I'm very happy with today's class. We're learning about the source of a mechitza. It's important for us from a people to know where it comes from, to know how this developed, at least the general, the general, to know what to respond, to know what to respond. We did not make these things up. Judaism is here for thousands of years. We are in a fight now, Mamash in a fight with our fellow Jews to make sure that what God told Moses to do, we are still doing. And one of the hardest things to swallow is a mechitza. Like, I'm just, like a shetel is, like a mechitza. And, and, I know that you guys here and the people that are here in this class come from Fruma backgrounds, or at least mostly. In Brazil, when our community was from a non-Fruma background, the hardest thing, the hardest thing to get a Jew that's already affiliated somewhat, even if it's once a year Yom Kippur in a conservative temple, to walk into an Orthodox shul is the Mechitza. And they have these beautiful slogans that families that pray together stay together. How do you beat that? Families that pray together stay together. There was, a, there, was a, there was a shul in Brazil. It's tragic. It's tragic because, what can I tell you? They, at the end of Yom Kippur, what do they do? They get all of the families that are praying together. They stand under the same towers. So the end Yom Kippur, how can I beat that? How can you beat that? And you have, you know, the, the Baal Habas. I don't know what they're doing now. Today, it's completely Meshuggah of the world. But then, there was still a man and a woman. The man would wear a towers. And that shul, the woman didn't. This is a conservative show, but they were diving together. And the ending of Yom Kippur would be that every person would spread his talis over his family. Like, go, go, go compete with that. 
and it's a doubt, it's hard, so very hard. So we should know it's good for us to know where does this come from. Actually, we'll see there's two very important different ways in the understanding of a mechitza with many halachic consequences. So yes, this is going to be technical, but at least it's a new technical, not the old technical. Last week was about eating or, or drinking or hopping a snooze. That detail in a shul can be spoke about it. And now we're moving on to the laws of mechitza. Now, the way we the way we approach any topic is that we look at the Mishnah Gemara, which is the first proper record of the oral Torah. We never go back to the Chumash, even though everything is sourced in the Chumash. But that's not the way we come to the understanding of what God wants. We look in the Mishnah and the Gemara, and you will notice that the Gemara was written so vague, and it's so brilliant, because vague is brilliant. If you don't want to be cornered, you speak vague. And the Gemara spoke vague, and that allows for there to be different ways in understanding it, and ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, there are two very different understandings regarding Mechitza. They're not that different, but they're different, and there's big consequence. Bottom line will be, you can walk into an Orthodox shul today, some shuls have short Mechitzas. Some shuls have Mechitzas that you can see through them, it's glass, transparent Mechitzas. Just oh, like, where did that come from? None of these things were made up. None of these things were made up. You're going to push it and see how this came to be. And then we know how we practice, but knowledge here is very important. If not that you need it, but you will be engaging sooner or later with people that live in this neighborhood, and it's good to know. It's good to be in the know. I oh. knew that my son-in-law, when he moved to Birmingham, and he moved to this shoe, is 165 years old, a conservative. And so he wants to bring the mechitza. Believe me, he has such a tough time. Of course, of course. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, okay. The Rebbe was very helpful when he was physically here and guiding every person in that specific location, helping do this and do this and do that. The Rebbe's way of going about these challenges was never to impose it. See, the Rebbe was a real holy man. The Rebbe figured out how to frame it in a way, it might take a couple of steps more, where people on their own came to that. That's what you want. You want for for the Yidin on their own to come to the understanding of this is our tradition. Okay. So let's begin. The, the, the irony. The source of this... I know I sent this two, two weeks ago or three weeks ago on the chat. If you want, you can look it up. You don't have to. I'm going to read it. But it, it, you have a PDF of this booklet, which is called Koivitz Maramakoivitz. This is just a compilation of all of the sources that I'm quoting. It's on the Rabbi Z chat. I'll try to find it later. It doesn't matter for the people here. But if you want to look at it later, you'll find it. If you're going to open up the PDF of that booklet, I'm going to translate it. No, I know. I know. It's going to be on page 11. And I'll read it. I'll read it and translate it. The Gemara was speaking about some physical, temporary building phenomena that happened every year going into the first night, Cholamoy Sukkot. Just quickly backing up, we have, a, we have many holidays. You have Pesach, we have Shavuos, let's call it Rosh Hashanah, we have Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot. In Eretz Yisrael, until today, Sukkot is not two days, there's one day, one day of Yom Tif. Then they have the five days Cholamoy then you have a Shana Rabba. Okay, it's a whole different structure over here. 
Yamtiv is Yamtiv. Matza Yamtiv. The Mishnah says they enacted this great tikkun. There was a big tikkun. There was a rectification that they did during the times of the second temple, rectifying as we were during the times of the first temple. And what is it that they did is that they would build temporary balconies, which were designated for the women who stood there and watched the celebrations of Simcha's Beis HaShoeva. What is Simchat Beis HaShoeva? Simcha is joy. Shoeva means to draw. Even though base or bias means a house, sometimes the word bias doesn't mean a house. It means the ceremony of, the gathering of, of the drawing. We have to wrap our heads around a couple of things. A center part of Yiddishkeit is offering sacrifices on an altar. I know this is so foreign, and Hashem will help us that we will, we will witness this in our lives, and we'll get used to it. And I think not only we will get used to it, it's going to resonate because it's going to bring back memories of old. Because this is deep ingrained within the Jewish neshama. Imagine that Adam and Chava, intuitively, what was the first thing that they did after they were created? They brought a carbon. And you have to understand who these people were. You know that Chava baked challah for Shabbos? Think about it. Do you know if I would place you somewhere in a garden, okay, without an oven? Yeah. Go bake challah without ever being taught anything. You don't even know that this grain can be ground into flour. You don't even know that you can mix it. Like, like these are people that the type of intuitive knowledge that they have is like we're so we're in a different universe. So what's the first thing that they did? They brought a carbon. When Noyach was saved from the flood, if you can just imagine the feeling, he walked out of the ark. All of these futuristic movies that the world is getting destroyed. So you're living in LA, and all of a sudden you walk out of your house and there is nothing. Zero. Couple of trees. You understand what that would do to you? I can't. It's beyond. And the first thing that he did is, he brought a carbon. There's something about carbonus. There's something so deep about it that it's, you can argue, quantitatively, the biggest mitzvah in the Torah. Almost all of the mitzvahs are connected to the temple, and they are connected to the carbonus. You have five books of the Torah. A book and a half is history. A book and a half is, the last book is a repetition. How much is left? So from the two and a half books, one book is only about carbonus. Leviticus, the Goyim call it. Vayikra. It's tragic that that something so essential to who we are is something that's not being practiced at all. That's how off we are. That's how off we are. It's like a person being married for 50 years and realizing the whole thing was off. All, it's, 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 the whole Yiddishkeit is off. Everything is off. Not off by a little bit. Off 180 degrees. It's Meshuggah. That's Golos. And of course we can't see it because we're that off. The carbon didn't only mean slaughtering a little goat. It meant that also. There were, there were two movements when it came to a carbon. Extremely important movements. There was the movement of elevating, elevation movement. Elevating what? The lowest part of this world, the animal. Elevating the animal. And then you have the opposite movement. The opposite movement is bringing down something godly into this world. 
Every carbon had those two dynamics. That's the mug and David. Every movement that we make has to be of those two movements. If we only make one movement, we're in big trouble. If a person is into elevating, they're going to be those people that live in La La Land. And there are too many people like this. They're always flying in the heavens. How are you? They're, all, they're amazing. Amazing. These are people that are that are very ill. It's an it's a, it's a illness. Many people escape the, the, the difficulty of this world by running there. But it's a machl. It's very, very unhealthy. And it's one of these types of illnesses that it takes you many years to realize that someone is sick. Because whenever you talk to them, they're, very, they're great. They're great. And they're in Gan Eden. That's one type of movement. The next movement is to figure out how to connect to something lofty and bring it down. That was done by the pouring of the wine on the Mizbeach. It was really good wine. Wine represents something very heavenly. Heavenly also means something very deep. Physically, wine is coming from the depth of the grape, if you think about it. There's a grape. You can live in the most external world. You're living on the peel. The beauty about the grape is that the grape is the only fruit that God created that physically the klipa doesn't conceal. You can see through it. How great is that? That means when you look at a grape, you can see its pit. All the other phenomena that God created, and everything has a klipa, you cannot see through the klipa. You're stuck. You have to really be intelligent to see through it. And if you wouldn't make an effort, you wouldn't even know that all you're looking at is the klipa and you're not even seeing the thing itself. What you think you're seeing, you're not even seeing. You don't know what you're looking at. At least by the, by the, by the grape, you know that you don't know. Like, what would it look like if you take away the outer peel? I don't know, but I know there is an outer peel because I can already see through it. That's called klipa snoiga. That's the grape. And what happens is, is that when you reveal it and you really reveal it, like this revealing and then just squeezing it out, you have to figure out physically how you make the wine, what's going on over here. That when you squeeze the core out, you, 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 you're, you're, you're touching something very lofty. It was so lofty that it cannot manifest in this world naturally. It can only manifest in a secretive way, in a hidden way. And now you're bringing it out, wine. And that's what happens when you drink wine. What does the wine do to you? It brings out your secret. And what happens? They would pour the wine down on the altar. They would pour it down on the altar. So you have the animal that's going up and you have the wine that's coming down. These are the two movements. These are the two movements that we all we are all engaged in and with greater awareness, we can get a greater handle of it and we can constantly correct ourselves by asking ourselves, what am I doing right now? Am I going up or am I coming down? And whichever mode I'm in, you have to acknowledge it and then you have to make an effort to go in the opposite direction. And then you are alive. That's the movement of life. Say that last huh? Can you say that last sentence again? That becoming aware of the importance of both of these movements mm-hmm. and then becoming aware of self. What am I doing right now? Like when a person goes to a class, what movement are you going into? I don't know. I'm sure that some people come to a class because they want to escape. They want to go up. Some people come to a class like a halachic class, the opposite. They want to, they want to figure out how to... I'm already lofty, I'm already spiritual, but I wanna, I wanna translate it in my behavior. Tell me what to do. Like everyone is different. And it's important to know where I'm at, where I'm going right now. I'm not saying to stop that movement, but then to figure out how to counter that movement. If not, we're, we're half people. Imagine a half a person, that's what we are by nature. 
Yes. Yes. Now, even greater than wine. Now, this is the biggest secret. Even greater than wine is water. Water, mayim. Water. water, really, if you're speaking about wine being hidden in the grape, water originates from, what's the answer? The ground. From the core of the ground. Currently, science, with all of its development, does not yet know what's in the core of the world. According to Kabbalah, in the core of the world, there is infinite amount of water. Infinite amount of water. Oh. Infinite means that the world has a size. Infinite means that if you would be able to tap into it, and water would be relieved from it, it would automatically replenish itself. That's called infinite, because no matter how many gallons you're taken out, not one drop will be missing. How crazy is that? That, huh? Whatever you want to compare it to. It's infinite. This water is so potent that even physically it would destroy the world. Did anyone have an experience of under your floor water is coming up? And every time we removed it, it kept coming back. There you go. And 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 that's 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 the end. That's the end, right? Now it's starting to drain for a month. So what? So this is very deep. So what did God do? God made the world in a way where He's protecting us from the core. We we cannot handle the core. But but we need a core. That's the challenge. Without a core, we're coreless. We're soulless. We're empty people. I feel empty. So what do I do? You're gonna touch the core. You're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna drown. So Hashem plays something called Earth, and Earth has this opposite phenomena. Earth, it keeps the water contained. It keeps it stuck. But Earth is porous. So something of the water, it's plotting in there. The core wants to come out, like God wants to be revealed. Your neshama wants to come out. Make no mistake, there's something in all of us that's shouting to come out, and we are afraid of it because it's gonna it's gonna flood us, it's gonna destroy us. So the, it begins to trickle through the earth, and then there is something that the goyim called the water table. Now that's what they begin. Now there's really two water tables. There's a higher water table, and all of this is something that's coming from the core, and ultimately. These little shtiklach water, they emerge in a spring. If you ever saw the mouth of a spring, it's so weird. The mouth of the spring is so gentle, so gentle, little trickle of water. Somehow, when you go away a foot, when you go away uh, 20 feet, you go away a mile, the water is gushing, gushing river. And where is it coming from? Here's where you see how a little is a lot. It's not a little. That's the way Hashem made the world. It's one of the biggest secrets, the waterways under the ground. Where's it coming from? Where's it going to? Now these rivers ultimately make themselves to the sea. All the rivers flow into the sea. The sea is a basin, but there's earth underneath it. So a basin means it's being held, but it's going back down. So you have this cycle. And the cycle becomes a little bit bigger when it goes up into the clouds and it comes down, but that's a cycle. That's a cycle. Water is the is a, is a much greater secret than the wine. That means if you really know how to do it, you should be able to become intoxicated by drinking this infinitely more than wine. We just we don't know how to do it yet, so we never need the wine. 
mamish. The highest level of intoxication is water. Now, most most of us are hearing these words. It's Chinese, but it's not. That's this is the emes. The Jewish people collectively somehow managed to tap into the power of water one week a year, sukkahs. And therefore, in the holy temple, when the core of all of the Yiddishkeit is the temple, the core of the temple is karbanis. The core of karbanis is to be actively involved in elevating even the animal. You're elevating the lowest, not only the lowest. Most people know how to elevate their heads. Saying, you know what? No, no, we elevate our heads. We go, we use our mind to learn Torah. But when we do that, we leave the whole animal below. That's illness. That's complete schizophrenia. We're speaking about elevating the animal and then bringing it back down. Wine. Carbon, libation. Nesachim. They poured wine on the Mizbeach. Sukkis, they poured water that they gathered from a spring that was near Yerushalayim, in a spring in which you actually saw it emerging. We saw the, the water coming out of the ground. Shiloyach. That ability of becoming intoxicated on water, if you think wine makes you happy, whoo, this water, all of the new, uh, all of the mushrooms in the world today, all your psychedelics is <laughs> nothing compared to that. And that was the Simchas Beis HaShoeim. So they actually went to the spring, they gathered the water, they brought it in golden pictures into the Beis HaMikdash, and they would dance with that water, they would dance with that water, late afternoon, through the night. It was a type of joy that the Gemara tells us, whoever did not witness that type of celebration, never saw celebration in their life. That means that there were millions of people in Yerushalayim, Without miracles, not everyone would fit into the temple, but many more people fit on Temple Mount, many more than fit today on the Koisal Plaza, just to give an idea. So we already witnessed sometimes you have these big tefillot and you have like 300,000 people there. You can fit uh, 600,000 people, you can fit uh, a million, with, by the laws of nature. Saying, just imagine a million yidin with the overflow. The lucky ones actually made it into the temple courtyard. And it was... Again, it was it, it, some people, it, they did not sleep for seven days straight. They did not sleep for seven days straight. The Gemara says it's impossible. The Gemara says they would, they would, while they were dancing, they were sleeping. While they were dancing, they were sleeping. Today, you go into every Haredi shul, that's exactly what it looks like. See, we're good, we follow that. The dancing, the, going on the Vima, see, you have to know how to read it. There was lehepech, that the, the, the joy was so great that even though your mama is sleeping, you're dancing like you never danced in your life. See how we get everything fadreit? It's mamish hilarious. So here's the Mishnah. The Mishnah says like this: that a matzah yantif, they would they would make a tikkun. They would make they would do something in the temple courtyard. Amar what did they do? Ah, we learned this, and he quotes another source, Abraisa, that chalaka hoisa During the times of the first temple, the temple courtyard walls, which were very tall, were smooth. Who cares whether they were smooth or ah? But what they did when they built the second temple, they had beautiful stone walls. Now, even today, like you can have a stone wall that's smooth, like marble, and you can have stone walls like 770, right? So where you have some stones protrude, some go out, some go in. It creates a beautiful design, but it was done not only for the design. 
the space between one layer and the other and the amount that it protruded or it wasn't dented allowed us to put huge planks of wood. Now the women were very courageous because that was all there was. There were planks of wood that would come out of the wall that you can insert and you can remove. Whether they had a 90 right angle, I don't know what they did to support it. But it was able to hold the weight, let's say of a million women, like Meshuggah, like all around the temple courtyard at a certain height. Now, it, the walls were very tall. It could be It was 15 feet up, that's what I'm thinking, or it was 18 feet up. It was, uh, it allowed for whoever's underneath it to have a lot of space. Now, it didn't go from side to side. It was like any woman's balcony in a shul where from, it was just from all four sides, that the, the, the middle was open, so whoever is there can easily look down. And that, the Mishnah says, was the tikkun that they made for women to sit above and for men to sit below. Nashim yoshus mil And the Gemara goes on to say that don't think that during the times of the first temple, the genders were sitting together in the temple. That never happened. There was always a separation of genders in the temple. And let's see how it evolved. It, it evolved. This is a Gemara. Sukkah, page 51. Barashayna, Barashayna means initially, it also means here in the first temple. The women were closer to the holy. The women's section, which was always physically separated, without a mechitza, it was just like two different locations, men and women. It wasn't men, women side by side, that's by a chuppah. It was closer to the temple, further from the temple. Closer to the altar, further from the altar. The women were closer. The men were outside. Which means that the women would walk through the men's section. It was huge entrances. So men would stop earlier and women would keep on walking. And there was a certain amount of frivolity. I know this word is very vague. Literally, it means lightheadedness. Whatever that means, and that's important to know what it means, that it did not prevent. It was supposed to prevent lightheadedness. It was supposed to prevent kalos which is why we, separate, we separated the genders. It didn't work. So they said, you know what? Instead of having the woman closer and the men further, they decided they're going to flip it. They're going to put the men closer and the women further. So now the men are walking through the ladies' section. They're not stopping there, but they're going through it. And it was still not good enough. wasn't good enough. So they decided the solution is different stories. Now, this was only done during Simchas Beis HaShoeva. Very important to note. Because of the huge amounts of people. Otherwise, otherwise, it remained that the women's section in the temple, it was actually called the women's section, was an area that was also used by the men as a walkthrough. To get to the men's section, you needed to walk through the ladies' section. But when the ladies' section, the ladies' section, I think, was like 30 or 40 times larger than the men's section. So it wasn't that there were so many more women than men. It wasn't that way. It was that there was enough room for ladies to go in one part of it. It was huge. It's like when you go to the Kaisal, you don't need a mechitza if, you know, it's so big. Women were in one part, and men that were working through it walked in another part. There was no mingling. 
But once the place packed up, maybe other times in the year, then they would put out this balcony to make sure that men and women are in separate locations in order for there not to be kalos roish. That's all the Gemara says. So that's the beginning of it. Step number one. Step number two. The Rambam, the Maimonides, wrote many books, many books. He wrote the most important book, which is called The Strong Hand, which is the Rambam that the Rebbe said we should learn every day, which is a halacha book. When the Rambam was 13 years old and he was running away from the Muslims because he, he wanted to live and they were killing all who did not convert, when he was 13 years old, on the run, without books, he wrote his commentary on the Mishnah, which is unbelievable. You think about a young boy fleeing for his life with his family, and he had the mental state and the knowledge of writing a book, and that book is called Pedish HaMishnayis. The Pedish, the explanation on Mishnayis, and the Ramam writes clearly, that's source number one, that the meaning of the Gemara, the tikkun that was needed is in order for the men not to look at the women. I'm reading his words. There was never an issue of women looking at men. That's the way it is. We don't have an issue with that. We have an issue with men looking at women. And that was the tikkun. That was the tikkun. And making a balcony doesn't prevent you from looking, but you have to make the effort to look up. Don't look up. Don't look up. When, when, when you're mingled... When there's a lot of people, the goal was for men not to be able to see women. So writes the Rambam in his Pedish HaMishnayis. Problem is, the Rambam in his Code of Jewish Law, I know this is technical, but we're going to go some part technical, the Rambam writes in Beis Abchira, he writes, Ezra's Hanashim, the lady section, that was built on a balcony, in order for the woman to be up and the men below, he writes, Kedei, for them not to mingle. The genders are separated in the Beis Hamikdash, and we learned last time we learned together that a synagogue is a mini Beis Hamikdash. That was the whole intro that we gave. That building a shul is a mini Beis Hamikdash. It's either for men not to see the women or for there not to be mingling. Don't I know this is technical, but it's it's it's, it's for me it's exciting. What will be a difference between these two reasons? How high does a mechitza have to be? If it's only to prevent mingling, it doesn't have to be that high. When you have a barrier that doesn't allow, you know, this is the men's section. Like, even look at a chuppah. See, by a chuppah, they put today, they put no mechitza. Most people are respectful. They don't intrude into the other section. And a chuppah is a religious ceremony. By a religious ceremony, we have to have the men and the women sitting separately because that's the way it was in the base on Mikdash. We don't put up a mechitza. Clearly, we don't have an issue of anyone looking at anyone, even though everyone should be looking at the front, but in the synagogue, everyone should also be looking at the front, at the Aron Kodesh. But the issue there, clearly, is not about seeing each other, it's about not mingling. And you know, sometimes they put these beautiful um, ropes, which make like the entranceway for the Chas and Kala, but we're not, we're gonna get, we're gonna get to the Chupa a little bit later. I just wanna speak about the concept that if the issue is not to mingle, that would allow for a Mechitza to be much lower. And most importantly, I would not care if the if the, if the mechitza see through. If the issue is for the men not to see the woman, then the mechitza has to be taller, and it has to be built out of a material that from the men into the ladies they can't see. This is the source in the Torah, 
In their, in their oral Torah, there is a Gemara. The Gemara speaks about the separation of the genders. The Gemara speaks about how they move the ladies to a higher section. And there's a, two statements from the Rambam. And it's not nuanced. It makes a big difference. And coming all the way, bottom line, most of the halachic authorities have the understanding that the Rambam wrote in the Perush HaMashnayis, which is the more stringent one, which is that the Mechitza has to be built in a way in order to prevent the men from seeing the women. And then you have Rav Moshe, for example, and based on that, in probably in most young Israel shuls, I'm not saying all of them, and in many other shuls that are Orthodox shuls, that have a Mechitza, they don't care if the Mechitza is not that tall, and they don't care if the top half of the Mechitza is made out of glass. There's no issue. Because it does the job. It does not allow for the genders to be mingled during the prayer. Now, the synagogue is the most important place where there has to be a mechitza because the synagogue is a mini temple. And in the Beis HaMikdash, from the beginning of times, men and women were not mingled together. The source of that is this Mishnah Gamana. We just see how they were separated from back back front, and then they decided different stories. There was always a segregation. Once they made the second story, they added something. What did they add? When it was on the same level, for sure they saw each other. They saw each other. In other words, it used to be that the segregation of the genders was sufficient with simply us sitting separately. From the times of the second temple, the Chachamim said, you gotta make a mechitza. You gotta keep them completely separated Now, many people say, ah, so a mechitza is by rabbinic law. No, it's not. Mechitza is a biblical law. And let me just tell you what the Gemara says. There in Sukkah, it's, it's fascinating. Who made the design of the second temple? Who made the design of the first temple? Who designed the Mishkan? Huh? Oh, so the answer has to be God. In other words, this is very important. Most of our life, most of our life, God gives the rules. Let's speak about your home, my home. God does not want to be the architect of your home. Not, not Begashmias and not Beruchmias. He wants for my home to be within the parameters of halacha. It's very important for your house and your house to look different. And we all naturally are that way. Some people, they get pissed off. They go and they, 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 they understand, right? That you got to be different because you got to be different. We are all bound by the same title. That is true in every part of life other than in the temple. Because the temple is God's home. What would you prefer? To move into a house that you designed or to move into a house that someone else designed? If you're a healthy person, no, you want to move into a house that you designed. Now, of course, many people over here, they bought a ready-made house in Bar HaShem and you got you so much headache, you got you so lucky. But there's something about, I designed this house. That I know in reality that one of the biggest points of contention in a marriage is if the couple comes to a point in life where they're building something together, if it's their home, they can get divorced over the color of the tile. Mamish. It's not a joke. Mamish. Because it's that. It's that. And, and everything that we experience, we're just mirroring God. God is so detail-oriented. Oh my God, he puts us all to shame. Look at the whole Shulchan Aruch, like it's mad. The big God. Exactly like that. If you go off a year, you're out. You lost it. If you really, really want to be connected to God, that's the way God is. And that's the way, everyone is that way, they just don't admit it. Once you go deeper, 
it's bidiuk. Approximately is if you're living in Klippa. Klippa is approximate. Kedusha is exact. Because, because God is holy and God is exact. So God designed the temple and look inside the Chumash. Look how many pages God devoted to the building of the Mishkan that doesn't even exist today. God is showing himself to us. He says, you're building me a house? God has an opinion regarding every inch of the house. Now, so people think, what about the temple? So that's why David HaMelech and Shlema HaMelech, aside of them being kings and aside of them being Chachamim, they had the ability of going into tremendous levels of prophecy and they designed the temple only in that state. And it's so important, the design of the temple, that the Gemara is asking, how were we allowed to make protrusions in the wall which will allow us putting in planks when the temple has to be designed by God. We don't have the right to make any modification in the temple. It's a chutzpah. It's like a guy going into your house and he said, no, 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 I'm going to change this. Imagine that's like, that's called, that's the intrusion. That's not appropriate. We're going to, um, the Oranit, close this and open it there. The suggestion is chutzpah. It's not about right or wrong. Like, like, like something is very off when people do that. We're not allowed to go into God's house and change the design. Even if it's a detail. For God, it's not a detail. For God, it's everything. So the Gemara answers that since, this is the Gemara, that the, the, seg, the segregation of gender is so important to God that he wants us to do that. It's biblical. If it would not be something that God would have wanted, we would not be allowed to modify the temple. According to all of the halachic authorities, building a mechitza is so biblical that we're not allowed to enter, certainly not to pray in a temple that has no mechitza. It's usher to do that. Not only that, in Shulchan Aruch, if you're living in a place, if you are at a place, and it's Rosh Hashanah, and the only place where you are going to hear the sounding of the shofar is in a synagogue that has no mechitza, you're not allowed to go there to hear the shofar, even though it means you won't be hearing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. That's everyone. The only machlokes we have is, is it to keep the genders unmingled or is it to prevent the men seeing the women? We paskin, we meaning charedim, black hatters, it's for men not to see the women. I would say that most, what we call the modern orthodox, will follow the opinion of Rav Moshe. 100% okay for someone like me, who in our shul, I would only do what the Rebbe wants. Nothing wrong halachically for me to daven in a shul where you mamish see the mechitz on the back and it's half glass. Nothing wrong because there's a machlekes how to interpret it. And th- that shul is following a halachically Rav Moshe Feinstein as someone who we can lean on. Not for me, I'm going to follow the Hasidish way and the most of the Haredish way, but there's something to lean on. But what we do have something very interesting, that outside the synagogue, outside the synagogue, there are other areas where we put up a mechitza, where we, se- where we separate the genders, like by a chupa. Everyone is more lenient because of it. Because the ikir, outside a shul, is for there not to be mingling. Let me give you the holiest environment, that now that you'll hear it, you'll say, aha. I happen to have the merit to be in it. In the later years, when the Rebbe did not have the time to have private audience with bar mitzvah boys, with bas mitzvah girls, with chassan, with kalas, the Rebbe would make a personalized, generalized yechidus. It's very weird. Maybe it could be that some people here as children were there. 
Because when I was engaged with Steri, there was a Yechidus for all Chas and Kalas. They had this a few times a year. And, and many people actually made sure that the wedding is done on a day. They hop one. Ours was Yud Beis Tamus. And what, ha- what we happened in that Yechidus was the Chas and Kalas and their parents. This is a relatively small group. We went downstairs on 770. They made it smaller. You should not feel that you're in a big room. They put these like Mechitzas. And there would be men in one side, women on the other side. The distance between the sides was less than this table. It was, it was, it was segregated, separated, with no mechitz at all. And the Rebbe would speak to both of us. And, and there was no mingling. In other words, it wasn't that Chassan Kala walked by the Rebbe later. At the end, the Rebbe would speak a few words, and then we would go over there. It was all of the men, or maybe it was a group of men, a group of women, a group of men. I forgot how, however they met, like by dollars. It wasn't mingled, but it was separated. Because that's not that's not a shul. It wasn't a shul, or by a chuppah, or many religious people by sheva brachas. You should know that when you make the birchas hamazon after a sheva brachas, we add special blessings. We make a, a special intro. Yeah, it can only make that intro if chasan and kala are segregated. Most people don't do it now. They segregate. It doesn't mean a mechitza. But there are many times in Jewish observance where we insist on there being a segregation of the genders, and we're very lenient in. We don't care if we can see each other. It's not about the seeing, it's about the not mingling. So atkan the halachic part of it. So just to recap, that the source of having a mechitz on the shul is the Gemara Sukkah, page 51. The Gemara speaks about the balconies that were built during the celebration of Beis HaShoeva. The Gemara clearly states that in the first temple we were segregated, but side by side, front back, front back, front back, and that it was still too much mingling, so they put it in a different story. There are two understandings of the Gemara. Do we have it there not to mingle? Do we have it there not to see? See is only between men and women. To make it clear, to have a mechitza that, that has a one-side mirror is a thousand percent good according to all of the opinions. And by the way, just for the record, that, that's the mechitzas we're building for the new shul. And we're going to have them already by the wise bar mitzvah that will be in two months. It's going to be how? It's going to be that the women, well, half of it is wood, but it's short, the half, and this, this top half, if you're in the ladies' section, you can see through. To yeah. see, to, to be part of the shul, yeah. and 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 if you're in the men's section, then it's a mirror. It's opaque. This is it, why we have a nach- Okay, I'm saying that's a hundred. That's a, that's the chumrah because that's even following. It's six feet. The Rebbe said it should be six feet. That's the question. Six feet. The Moshe says it can be shoulder length. Many shuls over here. You walk in there, it's like weird. It's short mechitzas. There's glass, but it's halachically okay following the other opinion. We follow this opinion. And now I want to conclude a couple of minutes to speak about this idea of men and women and the women being up and the men being down. That's very significant. Going back to, we began with the carbonis, to be aware of the animal, of the movement of elevation and the movement of drawing down. The big difference between the genders, the big difference mystically, you know, what would you think? Who is primarily going up and who's coming down? As a group, and we, separate, we segregate men and women. No, you guys know, the women are from the left side. Women are Bina, women are Gevura. If you are in the left, there's no room to move more to the left. Where are you moving? You're moving, moving up, you're moving to the right. The movement, the movement of women, which is very similar to the movement of the Levine, it's an upward movement, naturally. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. But the feminine part of, of, of the Neshama by nature, is in, a, is in a state of being where it wants to move. Every living being wants to move. Where? You begin by going up. 
which means women by nature, the feminine part of women are very grounded, very down to earth, and you want to run away from it. You want to run away from this bloody earth. You want to go to something uh, more elevated. Men, the masculine part of the of the neshama, the man begins in chachma or in chesed, which also means this is the concept heavenly. And the first movement is a movement of coming down. The word chasan in the holy tongue or in Aramaic is nechois, go down. When a chasan is getting married, two people are meeting. What is the movement? He is going down. He's grounding himself by getting married. And kala means the yearning. The word yearning, kaloisan, yearning means going up. Now think about the beauty. If men are beginning from the top and women are beginning in the bottom, then in the temple, one would have erroneously thought, where would they place the men? Where would they place the women? The men should have been placed above and the women should have been placed below. And that's the whole point. The Chachamim are showing each group where you need to get. What was the joy? You know when you get joy? I'll tell you something. There is a joy of understanding what's going on. That's the first joy. Most people are in the dark. But then once you begin to realize what the heck is happening and you understand where you're at and where you need to go, that's you can celebrate, but there's a burden. Because now, oh my God, I got a lot of work to do. What is the joy when you when you reach your destination? You know that simcha? Especially if it took you 40 years to get there, imagine that simcha. And then we die. That's the thing. And then we move on. Like, that's the end. So so no rush. But in the base Amigdash, the Chachamim were showing us where you need to get. And the ultimate goal is for men to reach planet Earth and for women to reach the heaven. So that's what they, and that was the joy. And that was the simcha. Where everyone had a moment where they experienced that they already, they are, they are reaching their goal. You know, there's a beautiful story. There was a, in the 60s and even before, but the 60s was the last decade. I was born in the 60s. I remember, I'm just kidding. That 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 the Rebbe would meet groups of, 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 of students, high school students, college students. The Rebbe had a lot of time given over to the young. Because the Rebbe felt that if you only have 24 hours in your day, it's more important to give it to people that are in the beginning of the journey than people that are already towards the end of the journey. And, and in such an audience, many times it came, Jewish groups came from very non-religious backgrounds and they were very smart. Teenagers are very smart to whoever has teenage kids and they have these great, I got your questions. And you have to be really very smart to know how to answer. And sometimes better not answer. Give them a hug and you got away with it. And they asked the Rebbe, they asked the Rabbi, do you consider us, do you consider us to be good Jews? You have to appreciate the catch-22. These are people, none of them are keeping Shabbos, none of them are keeping kosher. Like, what should the Rebbe say? What would you say? You're going to say, yeah, yeah, you're good Jews. Okay, then we're good Jews. What is the Rebbe going to tell me? You're not good Jews. Yeah, the judgmental rabbi. Catch-22. It's a catch-22. Oh, this is, this is what the, your kids do to you. They still do it, even though you think they don't do it, Mrs. Fishman. Your kids are still teenagers, and they're still doing good. And then for those of us who have living parents, that's what we're doing to our parents. Whether we like it or not, we're, we're catching, we're catch-22-ing them the whole time, and we're getting upset at them at the same time. It's a gavalic. So the Rebbe, 
The Rebbe Gavalik, the Rebbe answered this, and this is, you can hear a recording. The beauty of the Rebbe was is that he was very soft and he was very quick, and no one, no one chapped. So the Rebbe asked him, are you familiar with Yaakov's dream? In the Torah. So one guy says, ah, Chagall's painting? It's so funny. That's what they knew, you know, Chagall's painting? And the Rebbe said, yeah, yeah. The Rebbe said, yes. And the Rebbe asked him, how do you understand Jacob's dream? So you hear them saying consensus. He says that man is on the earth and, and God is in the heaven and it's the, the, the journey the journey of going up to the heaven. The Rebbe said, beautiful. It's so nice. The Rebbe told him that imagine that the ladder has 613 rungs. Every rung is a mitzvah. And now the Rebbe went back to the question right away, smoothly. The Rebbe says, if you have a person standing only on rung number two, and another person standing on rung 612. And I were to ask you, who was closer to the heavens? What would you answer? They were quiet. They understand. They, they hop. The devil's trying. And the devil says, it will depend in what direction you're facing. Gavaldic. And the devil spelled it out. The devil says, you can be almost at the top. But if you're facing down, if your back is towards the heaven, and you take the person, he says that it's on rung number two. But they're facing the heaven, they're closer to the heaven. The Rebbe says the fact that you have young men and women that are in New York City and chose to come to speak to a rabbi with a beard means that you guys are facing the heaven. That's, that's answering the question. Telling them, you are only on rung number two, you guys. You guys better shape up without needing to say that because they never knew how to communicate to people. It doesn't matter why you, you have a lot of growth. But they never acknowledged the fact that they were curious to speak to him, why they can go dance in a bar. They're facing the heaven. That's very powerful. That's very powerful. So I want to conclude that facing that facing the heaven, according to the Al is the movement that women have to get into more. Just understand. That means if a person is feeling off-center, if a woman is not feeling well, a woman's class, I think the solution for you guys, generally speaking, everyone, there's always exceptions, is to face the heaven better. And a man has to hear the opposite. Like, that's why there's so many technical mitzvahs that men are obligated to keep. And women are not obligated because the technicality of a mitzvah is not heaven. The technicality of a mitzvah is very earthy. Ritual is earth. This, do it like that, do it at this time, do it at that time. It's the opposite of heaven. If you want to become spiritualized, you have to feel spiritual every morning, 7 o'clock. It's not even a joke. It's pathetic. 100%. Dominion is not heaven. It's not heaven. Telling a woman whenever you have a few moments, Davin, very few rules by davening, that's heavenly. Then davening is something heavenly. They said Mikdash was the place where women felt they are in heaven and men felt that they, were, that they landed, that they're bringing to earth, they're bringing down to earth exactly what God wants. And Hashem should bless all of us that we should merit to see this in the Beis Mikdash that we will build. Amen. 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 Amen.